Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. Thank you very much um, for introducing us. And thank you all for being here tonight and for believing that this is an issue important to discuss. Today, we take you to the Isabel Bader Theatre in Toronto and an uncomfortable topic for practitioners of journalism. Distrust and even disdain for the media continues to rise to record levels. Trust was the theme of this evening, a public discussion presented in person by CBC President Catherine Tate called Trust Talks, the future of journalism in a digital world. In 2023, the Reuters Institute commissioned uh, research on Canadians' attitudes toward public service journalism. Guess how many respondents said it was important to them? 19%. Victoria University was the host, and our challenge to three invited heavyweights of Canadian media explained to us why, in this digital age, fewer Canadians believe they can trust traditional media outlets. On stage, Irene Gentle, Vice President at the Toronto Star, Sonia Verma, Vice President at Global News, and Brody Fenlon, Editor-in-Chief for CBC News. It was my job to guide their discussion. Let me start with this. We've all talked about this, how journalism is a bedrock of a healthy democracy, that it's integral to civic society. It's what motivates all of us to stay in this business and to have even started in it. But in this moment, really, is it still true, given what the numbers say about waning trust, Irene? First of all, do I believe in it? I do believe in it. There's evidence that when, when people are without a credible news outlet in their area, that their civil society gets worse. Voting goes down. You know, a lot of things happen. But I don't think that we can ignore the numbers that you mentioned. I actually love the, the, the Reuters Oxford uh, studies. I, I read them very carefully. Uh, news indifference. So, you know, we all know about the news haters. Um, I think, you know, many of us have, have experienced that and certain journalists uh, are targeted uh, more than others. And hopefully we'll really talk about that too because that's a huge issue. But aside from the haters, which are vocal, and they can influence some other people, I think it's like 38%, according to those studies as well, people just don't care about news one way or another. They simply, they're just, they're not even available to us. So if we tend to think of like you have 100% of a society, um, and you are trying to reach as many of those as possible, 38 are right off the table. And then there's the ones who actually do hate. And again, those are vocal. And sometimes they're politicians. And so sometimes they bring, you know, a bunch of other things to it. So, you know, we can get upset about that. But I think we also need to look at, like, well, why? Like, why has that happened? So there's tons of external factors. But I think we also need to to look within. I think we also, um, the tools that we use, uh, sometimes they're really great for those who already believe in us. But they can actually backfire. Um, when they don't believe in us, whether they're either indifferent or, or in fact, actual haters. So 
An example that I use, and these are really good practices I completely think we need to continue doing, um, fact-checking. There's some research that when you fact-check things, those who are not already inclined to have trust in media don't actually begin to trust you. They distrust you more and double down on the, the other belief. So it has actually the opposite effect. Corrections. It is the right thing to do to admit that you've done something wrong. And we make a lot of mistakes because we're doing things in real time in really difficult situations. So we should correct 100%. But people, again, apparently, um, psychologically, when they see those, they begin to actually lose faith in the institutions that are making the corrections in the first place. So, so the things that we do to work, we need to add to them to be able to get to that other group. And some of those examples you just mentioned are actually quite counterintuitive, and I want to get at why that is the case, but let's, let's come back to that issue a little bit later in the discussion. Sonia, if I can ask you the same question. Are we really still integral to the democratic process if so many people think we're irrelevant? Irene is absolutely correct. It's something that's actually been studied, and there is a clear relationship between local news coverage and voter turnout. There was a study that was done, I think, by um, the Democracy Fund, which actually showed that as many as, as I think it's 13% of voters, like it can actually ship, motivate up to 13% of people to go out and vote in, in local elections. So that's a huge number. But I think beyond those studies is the idea of accountability. And, and that has a lot to do with democracy. So I think about um, Mercedes Stevenson, who is our Ottawa bureau chief, who did amazing work on sexual misconduct in the military. And I asked her, actually, I asked her the other day, what was sort of the biggest impact of this work for you? She says, accountability for senior leaders to no longer be able to abuse their authority with impunity. We are protecting the troops from the enemy within so they can safely serve their country. Democracy-wise, it means even senior leaders in uniform don't get away from accountability of the people. And that's a really important concept. So the fact that our reporting encourages accountability is, is I think, essential. And I heard Catherine mention that there's some journalism school students in the room. Um, so raise your hands. Be proud. Yes. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> um, you know, the power that all of you have to ask questions and to make changes is also there. There are a couple of very high-profile stories in the States where student journalists actually did work that led to the resignation of the president of Stanford University, for example, uh, the firing of the football coach at Northwestern University. So these are things that, again, contribute to our democracy, contribute to, to, to fairness and justice, and so I think those things are relevant as well. Staying in the big picture, Brody, can you tackle that question as well? The big pictures, yes, absolutely. I see it every day where journalism makes a difference. And it's a difference in terms of accountability and the functioning of democracy. It's as simple as helping people with life-saving information when a fire is bearing down on their community. Journalism is many things. Uh, and we are needed and we are turned to in those really important moments. That's not to minimize these enormous pressures and challenges. Uh, but I am eternally optimistic about what we can do for people. And we are going to tackle those pressures, both internal and external, because they all bring about different consequences in the work that we do. The interesting thing about all of you is that you, you're all in positions of authority in, in these newsrooms, very different than my experience as a journalist in the field, where you know, you're, you're kind of day-to-day -day doing the pieces, and, and I get different kinds of reactions to, to my pieces than you do. And I know it's not easy to talk about the negative, but I feel like we should in the interest of transparency. And so the first time I came across someone questioning 
you know, the trust and saying to me, what are you doing? Like, well, I don't trust what you're doing, was when I did a melt, what we call a melt, you know, a story out of the London Bureau talking about a part of the world that I was not in. It was a part of the world that I was familiar with. It was in Africa, but I did a story using agency pictures. And so I remember the time someone called me out on that and said, why aren't you there? Why are you doing the story from here? And I had to explain why. I mean, there are resource issues, those kinds of things. So Sonia, I just, I'm curious if you can give me an example from the manager's point of view. When you first kind of got a sense, wow, yeah, we're being questioned and people are saying, tell me why I should trust you. So I've been in the field as well. We've been in the field together. And, yes. um, <laughs> and uh, it's actually not so different from where I sit right now. Mm. Um, we get questioned all the time. And, and I actually think it's a healthy thing. I, I have no problem with questions. And I think that actually trust has to do with showing that you actually know what you're talking about, have done the work of journalism, you know? And, and there's, you know, I mean, I'm a big believer in having our journalists go to cover the story, which is why we have crews in the, in the Middle East today, why it's been a priority for us to deploy to Afghanistan, to deploy to Ukraine, and to make sure that our teams are actually there. But, but trust is something that you earn. It's not something that you just are given. And so I think that journalists have to, to earn that trust by showing that, you know, even if they're not standing in the middle of a particular story, that they've done their work, that they've done their best, to actually tell that story. I think that trust is also something that, um, that is earned by not showing bias and by doing your best to be, to be fair, you mm -hmm. know, and as objective as, objective as possible. And, and frankly, when we're getting questions uh, by, by both sides of a conflict to the same level, I think we're doing our job, you know? Irene, can you think of, a, of an example of when, when you first realized, wow, you know, the trust is being questioned here. Yeah, very easily. It was um, uh, dating back to, to the, the Rob Ford mayoralty. When for the first time people questioned, like you know, reporting is a lot of witnessing and reporting what you witness. And people didn't believe that we witnessed what we witnessed. They just said it's not true. And so I, I love the idea of proving, you know, you're earning your trust. But, but I, I think sometimes it can be a bit unfair to reporters who are doing everything they can to earn that trust. And the trust still isn't actually showing up. We need to do better holistically around them to support them as well, because like, they really do. Uh, I guess actually I should say that right up front. I think journalists are people who are in journalism today, and I'm sure this is true of the journalism students in this room too, they want to make a difference and they want to do good. Like, who would go into this industry at that moment if that is not the case? It's 100% the case. They do uh, work very hard to earn trust, and, and outlets do what they can to earn trust with, you know, either you know, ombuds or public editors or, or, you know, all the other things that we have said. But there came a time, and again, a lot of people think that this was really kind of the pandemic, and it wasn't the pandemic. The, the, the seeds were there before that. Donald Trump was obviously another piece of it. Um, you know, a lot of what we're seeing today is another piece of it. People don't believe their own eyes. Not only do they not believe our eyes, they don't believe their own eyes. And, and with some of the stuff that's already been mentioned, they're right. I mean, there's so much intentional disinformation. And there, there's so much of it. Um, and it's emotional. And people respond to that emotion. Whereas there is less of journalism because there's less journalists than there used to be. 
and they're in fewer places than they used to be, and they're, they're stretched more because the news cycle is such as it is, right? So they're working so hard to be able to cover all these things, and disinformation does not need to fact check, it doesn't need to get anything legal, it has no accountability or responsibility often, and you're fighting um, against that. So definitely journalism does need to do everything it can to continue to earn it. Again, I think we also need to look beyond that and figure out, okay, but, but then how do we get things to them when news is blocked? How do we get when news is throttled? How do we get beyond people's uncertainty about their own account? I mean, what, what, they, what they themselves see in here. I think we can always, I think we can all agree that disinformation has always been out there, but it obviously has been, I'm stating the obvious, weaponized and accelerated by social media. We know the effect it has had, social media, I mean, on advertising dollars and funding models and all of that. But I wonder, Broda, if you could speak a little bit more about how precisely social media has eroded the trust of traditional media. Is it that direct relationship? What happened? Sure. I'd love to just riff off Please Irene do. for a moment. Yeah. Because when I noticed trust, you've sparked a memory in me. I was buying a hamburger in a shop with CP24 up on the television, and it was the fact, your reporting, you, your reporters had seen a video, no one else had seen the video, and I remember saying, wow, look at that, they've got the video, and I remember the guy behind the counter saying, well, we don't know that, we don't know if that's true, and that was the first time for me I realized, wow, I mean, I believe the Toronto Star, and I, and I don't need to see the video, I believe the act of journalism that happened was solid, but I realized in that moment not everyone shared that view. And then you mentioned Donald Trump. And, and for me, one of the things around the criticism of, of us, the complaints about our journalism, uh, I noticed this incredible shift after Donald Trump. People used to accuse us of being biased or being in the pockets of one government or another government or our board of directors was appointed by a conservative and therefore we're conservative. But after Donald Trump, the criticism became you are fake news. So that label was powerful, and it worked its way very quickly across the border. So that's that. Now, your, your question was about social media and just the impact it's had. First of all, there's lots of good that came out of social media too, the access to publication for anyone. But what has also happened was, first of all, a lot of content appears the same. You had a flood of content. You had it algorithmically served to audiences. And those algorithms are driven by emotions and response. And so you end up with a feed that is mirroring your own interests or your own reaction. And that reaction can be anger or frustration, but these are highly sophisticated, speaking of AI, as Dr. McCune said, these were, this is sophisticated AI from years ago. And so the window on your world is narrowed. The sources of news are confusing in that space because everything kind of looks the same. Hard to delineate brand in social media. So for the CBC, how do we stand out with a piece of real fact-based journalism to another article that looks identical and is produced by somebody in a basement in another country? That, that's where it started. And, and now, where are we? Well, now we are in a, a, almost a, an era where the social media platforms have devalued, deprioritized news to the point of either deprioritizing on X at the whims of Elon Musk or on Facebook actually being blocked. And, uh, and so we're not a priority in those platforms, but it leaves a huge vacuum because we're not there and yet there's a lot of bad information that's out there. So the ecosystem is polluted in social media and we're in this difficult position of saying, hey, 
everybody, I know you spent 10 years over there, but why don't you come back and download the news app and look, sign up for our newsletters, come to our own websites because we're really the only place now you can go, digitally at least. But Sonia, how, how culpable are we, the media, in making the decision initially to jump on the bandwagon of social media? Did that have a specific effect beyond the fact that social media itself is such a, an accelerator of, of uh, disinformation? Well, I, I think that social media of today is, is a totally different beast than the social media of back then. And as, as Brody you know, mentioned, you know, I mean, when I was a reporter, I used social media as a tool to connect people, to have conversations, to get information. It was a reporting tool. And, and now it is, um, it is totally different. So are we culpable? I, I, I wouldn't use that word. I, I do think that there's a broader thing um, that's happened, right? I mean, news is expensive. News is expensive to produce. And news has always been subsidized, you know, one way or the other. So back when I worked at the Toronto Star, there were classified ads. And, you know, those, those disappeared. Music on, on radio, right, was extremely profitable. Um, Primetime shows, now we have Netflix. So that money has really sort of dried up and it's been taken by some of these, uh, these big platforms, right? We haven't been compensated in the meantime. And so that's the piece that's changed. So the economy of, of news, of producing news, it's always been expensive, but where we have been compensated and our lack of compensation today is, is, is what's missing. So to take Brody's point a little bit further, I think it's actually a little bit more insidious than that. So you have these platforms that are not only you know, taking our ad dollars, they don't have any of the responsibilities or accountabilities that we do as credible news organizations. We have a, a set of standards that we take very seriously, that we adhere to and that all of our journalists adhere to in terms of accountability, in terms of objectivity, in terms of professionalism. And none of those variables of accountability you know, are, are followed by the platforms. There's, there's no obligation there. So you know, not only is there a double standard, but then there's this, this magnifying glass on our, our work and you know, amplification of disinformation. When we're talking about culpability, I, I don't think that we should be actually focusing on ourselves in that case. We'll come back to whether that's the case or not, but in a different context. But Irene, you want to respond to that? I do, to the, to the question. I think culpable is, is definitely strong. But I do think we were credulous. I think media was credulous, and I think governments were credulous. I think when, when you know, very disrupting kind of big, big tech sort of came, there was a sense of, like, we really need to grab onto this and to find a way, because we were, again, we've, we've been kind of declining in some ways for some time. And so I, I don't think we gave it that full accountability that we have actually done for a bunch of things. And I think, again, governments didn't do that either. So some of that compensation that you're talking about are kind of like guardrails. We're trying to do them 10, 15 years after the fact. Uh, and I think that's relevant now, not to just say like, yeah, well, we should have done better back then because, because of AI. Um, I think AI also does have great promise. I think there's lots of things that could be, you know, really, really great about it. I don't think we should go into it credulously, either as media or as, as you know, as government or anything else. I think we need to look at, at guardrails there as well. Yeah. So just since you brought that up, I wonder if, if you could just answer the question of what, there are lots of good things that AI could do, but take me to the part where you're really worried. <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, we, we just... We Where trust is concerned. Sorry, I shouldn't sure. interrupt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's that you can't believe your eyes and it will become harder. I mean, it can become harder to believe your eyes. I mean, someone, you know, something can look exactly like someone and sound like some, someone that, that is not that person um, saying something that they didn't, you know, mimicking a journalist, putting them in harm's way, 
through that, not, not, not just the lack of, of truth to it, but also it can, it can be really dangerous. And in fact, it can be really dangerous, like disinformation can be deadly. It isn't just an intellectual debate, obviously, like it, it has real world consequences. So, so the, you know, deep fakes, like, like really where it's imitating something else, um, taking copyright, I guess, like, you know, things that, that people really did work hard on and then just using it as their own or worse, manipulating it. Um, so it actually turns out to mean something very different than, than it was meant to. Um, again, guardrails, you know, put yeah. journalistic layer on thing if you're going to use it. I think I, I'm certainly not saying stop the truck. Like, I, I think just pay attention to it. Brody, just talk about how, how often that future concern is actually crossing your desk. Oh, I think everyone should be really, really focused and concerned about AI. I think um, the information ecosystem is about to get so badly polluted that it will be very difficult to tell what is real. And it's not just deep fakes. I mean, we will be very soon at a point, so just to be clear, where you will be able to watch a video of a CBC News host telling you something that's not true with branding of CBC News, and you will not be able to tell. That world, coupled with the power of artificial intelligence to actually outsmart a human by figuring out the human and then playing to the human's weaknesses. I mean, this is a powerful, powerful thing. So it's, it's you know, where my mind goes is, um, you know, they describe it as the liar's dividend, but the idea where you cannot trust anything, so you don't trust anything, including reputable news organizations. How do we make sure that our journalism is trusted in that world or even found? Is it even possible? It might be. It might be a great thing for news organizations. It might be the moment where people are so in need of something that they can hold on to as factual and real that we end up, our value might be increased. But it's going to be very, very messy, especially when I think there's a lot to be looked at about what is the regulation and who's going to enforce it. And it's going to be a global issue the way we've seen with other major uh, developments and new technologies, be it nuclear, food safety, etc., Stepping back from that abyss, Sonia, just to the current challenges, and this is the last of the external challenges that I wanted to discuss with with all of you. There are literally millions of podcasts out there, all kinds of other news sources, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. I'm just wondering when you sit down and think about how you persuade your audiences that there's a fundamental difference between authentic journalism and everything else, especially opinion that's out there in such a crowded market, is it even possible? What, what, what's your strategy? Oh, I mean, I, I don't actually think it's that complicated. Okay. <laughs> like I, I think that what we do is, um, is important. I think that most people know the difference between news and commentary. I, I do think that people recognize the importance and the value of news. Where our challenges are, are, are again, around the cost of paying for the cost of producing it. And, and this is a very real challenge. And you mentioned uh, you know, external challenges and internal challenges. Well, all those external challenges create internal challenges. You know, when we, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm talking about us as an industry, right? But to struggle financially, especially as a, as a private company, to make sure that we are able to deliver credible news. Uh, mm-hmm. We have excellent journalists who work for us. You know, we are still hiring. We're still doing um, important work, but it is getting more and more difficult because, again, of those, of those financial pressures. So how do we differentiate ourselves from sort of the rest of the noise? I, I really think it's about sticking to those core principles, which might sound old-fashioned, but actually really mean something. Asking questions of those in power, of, of going to the places that we're reporting from. But are um, you seeing evidence that that's actually working? 
Sure. I mean, I, I do think so. You know, I, I mean, one of the one of the stories that we've done, um, you know, and these are stories again that take a lot of investment. But the the work that we did as a news organization on Chinese interference, you know, into into Canada's political system, this was an enormous effort. This this took a lot of work. It took a lot of courageous reporting. You know, and, and frankly, it was reporting that we had to defend because we had a lot of questions when we started publishing our stories, which were based on sources who felt too scared to come forward because they worried they would lose their jobs, they worried there would be repercussions, but we really stuck to our standards, we stuck to our principles, and we made sure that what we published you know, met a certain threshold. Those stories really actually made a difference. People, people read that work. People and it's not just audience, right? I mean, again, there were huge repercussions politically as a result sure. of that. Yeah. Just before you leave the external pressures, though, there are a few others that we should talk about, and, and they're harder to cut through. You know, we are polarizing around politics and partisanship increases. And so for news organizations like ours that are aiming to reach and report on a consensus and believe in a consensus around facts and truth, that gets really difficult when the world is starting to pull apart into camps. And you do find yourself squeezed. There's also great evidence from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism that shows that countries where their media actually play into the partisan trap trust in media falls to really low levels. And the United States is a great example with the way that the cable net news networks kind of played to their camps. So I wouldn't advocate for that, but that's a big thing. And there are a lot of issues. News avoidance and news fatigue is a real thing. It's a global phenomenon. Especially so, in times of, of difficult news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the good news, bad news. is not just us. It's everywhere in the world. But for a few interesting examples in some Nordic countries where trust remains pretty high, uh, and then I just think there's other interesting patterns happening that people don't maybe talk about as much. Television. You'd ask people, where do you get news? Most people would say television because it was really an easy place to intersect with news. Morning show would have news. Game shows and soap operas would run into your supper hour news. Primetime entertainment runs into a, you know, a late night newscast. That was really easy access for a lot of people. And that habit is on the way out. There's still a lot of people who watch television, but it tend to be in their, you know, average age is 60. Younger people don't. And so, so that opportunity to connect as a new server and build a relationship, build trust, mm-hmm. is, diminishes when those older platforms fade. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast. Heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker, We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. I actually do think it is harder for people to judge sometimes, to know what was a really deeply fact-checked and expensive story to do versus what, what isn't. Irene Gentle. 
Vice President of Inclusion and Strategic Partnerships at the Toronto Star. I remember sometimes I would go <laughs> and irritate people I know um, by saying, you know, like this line in this story took us three weeks to get because it was, took three weeks to verify this line, one line, right? And so that's expensive. Clearly, the business of reporting the news is in some kind of crisis. A crisis of authority, believability, relevance. A Gallup poll in the U.S. asked if people believe national news organizations do not intend to mislead. Only 25% of respondents agreed. 50% disagreed, meaning they think national news organizations deliberately mislead their audiences. On stage at the Isabel Bader Theatre in Toronto, and yes, I can assure you, we were indeed there, the Toronto Star's Irene Gentle, with the CBC's editor-in-chief, Brody Fenlon, and Sonia Verma, Vice President of Global News. Our topic? Why did people lose trust in those organizations? We appeal to better nature. We appeal to intellect often. Like we appeal, you have to you have to consume something, you have to think about it, and it's tough, often very tough issues. Whereas some of the, the, the disinformation or whatever, it's again, it's very emotional and it's very it's it's fast. It's it's not complicated, it's not messy. And most things are messy. Like even even like what would have been from years ago called like a gotcha story, it's still gonna have a lot of nuances. It's still gonna have quite a bit of, of, of dissonance or, or or friction or mess in it. We are an attention starved society. Like everyone is kind of run off their feet in a lot of ways. So a lot of people don't have the bandwidth. Um, to really dive deep into that. So they'll take kind of what comes. And again, a lot of these things look pretty good. Like they, they look pretty legit. Before we move on to the internal pressures, which I think are important to tackle, I do want to ask this, and you raised the example of Nordic countries, Brody. You said that, and, and we know that in Finland, for example, for five years in a row, it's ranked number one out of 41 countries for its resilience to misinformation. And apparently one way that they counter fake news and, and misinformation that is out there is by teaching students how to recognize it what else can be done? What are you doing? Well, there are things that we can do, and I can speak to some of those. And then there's things that society has to do. And I think society has to decide whether or not it really believes that journalism and the fourth estate is a fundamental pillar of a healthy democracy. And if we don't have consensus on that, then all bets are off. Uh, and how do you foster? Well, that's everything from media literacy to valuing it to calling out people who discredit news media organizations. There's really compelling evidence that the more criticism there is of media, and I mean coordinated, orchestrated criticism, the more of an impact it has on the decline in trust. And surprise, surprise, when you tell people regularly that the media are the enemy of the people, people start to believe it. That's a, that's a big thing that we all own. And then on the inside, I mean, there's lots that we can do. And it's everything from, uh, first of all, making sure that we are diversifying our newsrooms in terms of who works uh, with us. That, that means racial and cultural diversity, but also political and geographic diversity, because a lot of people don't see themselves either in the newsrooms or in the coverage. There's work we can do around accountability, and I think our organizations do it. I, I've worked for a number of, of news organizations, and the CBC has, uh, I mean, f 
I haven't worked anywhere where public accountability is so high, and rightly so, but the amount of explaining of our journalism, the defending, the, the letters, complaints, an independent ombudsman process that holds you to account, all very important initiatives outside that are looking to try to put a stamp of approval on your standards, like the Journalism Trust Initiative. What is that about? That's like an independent audit by Reporters Without Borders. We spend a ton of time explaining our journalism, giving examples, and we're audited and given this approval. So we're looking for multiple ways, but really that work won't matter if we don't think it's important. Mm -hmm. Just to, uh, to both of you, just a quick answer on whether you think there's outside of journalism stuff that could be done to, to help regain the trust? I think probably many of us do have sort of a, a new classroom um, initiative. I, I think that's not uh, that's not an uncommon thing for for agencies to try to do. I think the Nordic countries they have they have a couple of things. Um, one is actually they they tend to I don't know about Finland specifically, but they tend to have a pretty well funded public um, public news uh, sources, mm -hmm. and so that that like robustly so, mm -hmm. and then they seem to split that between the private ones so that they can sometimes do different things. And what they actually do have is that they, they, for the longest time, I bet you it's not, I bet it's not as good as it used to be. Um, I think it's been steadily eroding, but they actually did have more people who would go specifically to the news sites. They actually had less of the, of the, of the social media experience like and, that. And why is that? I, I don't know a thousand percent why. Um, it might be, it might be English language. I think language is a big factor too I, I, in those countries. Yeah, I think for sure. I think it is. Like if you have a small population with one language versus English, where like you're, you know, we're not like we said we're competing for, you know, for attention with everything from you know Netflix, etc. But also with you know the BBC and the New York Times and and you know any huge amounts of of English media, there's less competition in that way. But I think they're still, you know, they're still aware that it's a, it's a growing issue and we're still having to try to respond to it. So we've been talking in detail about external pressures. I, I do want to get a little bit more about internal pressures. And, you know, I hear this more and more now that journalism may be returning to a pre-professional state, that young journalists often find themselves with short-term contracts, not very good pay, perpetually uncertain kind of unemployment, and not just for younger journalists, but some of the, some of the older ones as well. So, and this is a bit of a rhetorical question, but I'm wondering how you can build an authoritative, trustworthy journalism ecosystem under these conditions? And I'd love to hear from all of you on this, because it is such an issue, and it's a question that a lot of young journalists ask us. So maybe, I mean, Irene, yeah, we'll start with you. I'm happy to start. I mean, as, as Sonia has said, like a lot of the internal pressures are actually a result of the external pressures. Like, so the financial strain has done such damage in terms of, you know, how, how often you can hire and then how precarious the work is. Like that is, it is not uncommon for people to go through multiple rounds of layoffs or short-term contracts. Um, and I know the industry is really wants to change that, but then, you know, keeps being hit by kind of another wave of, of problems. Also, that tends to, you had mentioned um, diversifying the newsroom in, of, in, in many ways. Again, the, and many are unionized, and so you, know, you bring people in, and then when disaster again strikes, those are the ones who, who move out. So the people that you, you need the most in order to actually be relevant and credible, and I do believe you need them to be relevant and credible, you need a, a well-balanced newsroom. You suffer with that. Uh, the online harassment, like I, I don't think we should remotely underestimate the impact that that has. Like that this is, this does not impact every journalist in an organization the same. So, you know, there are people who hate the Toronto Star, there are people who hate CBC, there's probably people who hate Global. Uh, but that aside, like 
put that aside for a second. That, that leads to the broader questions of trust that you mentioned. But when they go on the attack against a journalist, it is, it's, it's, it's the same type of journalist they go to on attack of, right? Like it, it, is, it, is, it is frequently, obviously racial, not obviously, but definitely racialized, um, you know, who have, have an identity in some way that somebody objects to, and they go after them under the guise of it being journalistic, but it isn't journalistic. Like if you read these messages, some people have shared them on social media. This is just, this is just violence um, and hate. Uh, and it's identity-based. It is not based on the journalism they do. The, 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 sometimes, you know, topics can do it, elections can do it, COVID can do it, but lots of people can be writing on that. Lots of people are not going to get that type of hate. So these are journalists, again, who have, you know, like anyone being a journalist these days, has overcome a lot of barriers in order to do that. Some journalists are going to have to overcome more barriers in order to do that. And then they, they, they have to very frequently, or they want to, because their jobs are so precarious, they do sometimes feel they should be on social media because they need to make their own brand known in some ways if they can't guarantee that the rest of us are going to continue to hire them. And then they come under the, the, the most assault. So think of the, the strength of will you have to have, the fortitude you have to have to be able to overcome that over and over again. And we are not equipped, like newsrooms I think are doing a lot, news organizations are doing everything they can to try to address and support that, but we're not fully equipped to do it. And certainly we are not equipped in terms of legislation and we are not equipped in terms of, of policing. So we as a society are not equipped to deal with these and it's disproportionately placed on some journalists versus others. And that is a chill on our relevance. That is a chill on our trust. And then sometimes we need to review our own practices too. Sonia, I'm sure you'll have something to say about the specific angle, but I also want to go back to the precarity, the difficulty in actually finding professional opportunities for some of the young journalists who are out there looking for them. How does that affect the authoritative journalism that we all want, the more authoritative, I should say? Yeah, well, we have to hire, and, and we are hiring, but we have to hire smart, right? And we have to make sure that we address some of those questions around diversity to make sure that our newsrooms are representative, not just in terms of, of, of racial diversity, which is very important, but also in terms of a diversity of, of ideas. And so that we, you know, a healthy newsroom is a, is a newsroom where there's healthy debates of people with different points of view and, um, and, and, and where people actually feel that their voice is heard. So I think that um, while we're going through some of these financial pressures, one of the things that I try to communicate to people that I'm trying to hire is that we want to give people the freedom to do good work. What is it that we can do to create a healthy business, to make sure that you know, our business is thriving? It's, it's that internal commitment that we have to do big, important, hard stories because those are the ones I think that really sort of matter and make a difference and again sort of reinforce you know, the value that we have. So my view is that there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with some of these trust projects and things like that that news organizations can subscribe to. But those stamps of approval are often stamps of approval, it's like preaching to the converted. So they mean something to people who already sort of believe in what you're doing. So speaking of healthy newsrooms, there are some real debates in newsrooms whether it's about what role the word objectivity has, if any, in the work that we do, how you compare that with neutrality, how do, how do you define how much of a personal experience of a journalist should be brought to their journalism? These are real live debates in the business that we're in. Can you speak to how that, when it spills out into a general public discussion, also has a role in undermining or perhaps boosting trust? How, how would you answer that question? 
That's a great question. I, I was just going to add, by the way, the, the, the other th the thing about building trust. I mean, I really believe a lot of trust is built with local news, and that's probably the thing that's suffering the most because the business model is breaking or broken. And so the pullback in, in journalism is happening at the local level. And uh, all it takes really is to show up as a reporter with genuine curiosity in a small community, and that's how you build trust. But how do you do that when you can't fund a newsroom? But your other question, I mean, yes, and, and when we talk about, we actually use the word impartiality. It's one of our core principles, along with accuracy, fairness, balance, and integrity. Uh, and it is a very robust debate. What, whose definition of impartiality? How do you define it? Some people thought by impartial, we mean we're robots that give 50-50 to every story. This person says climate change is real. This person says climate change is not real. Ta-da, your story. That's never what it was about, but we've had to do a better job even defining it within the newsroom, never mind outside the newsroom. And then, of course, the question of who am I as a person with beliefs and a faith, maybe, and um, a connection to a community or a race or culture. Uh, we've had that debate as well, and we have told our staff that enriches our journalism, so bring it to the game. But the promise of impartiality is that when we show up at that story, and this isn't my analogy, but I love it because what we say is when you show up at the story, your notebook is empty. You bring your full self and your knowledge to that story, but the story is not pre-written. You're coming to it for the first time and you're going to report it based on everything you know and everything you observe. And some organizations have said, no, that's not for us. We'd rather look at other principles and take a stand or take a side and that appeals certainly to sometimes to younger uh, journalists who come up and said, I don't want to try to the middle ground. This is wrong and I want to fight for what's right. And I'm going to take a stand and work for an organization that does that kind of journalism, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Irene, you want to add? It is such. It's a. It's a great question. Um, and these debates. I mean, I actually love the fact that you said that people don't even agree on the on the what the words mean because I think that's really important. And sometimes when we're talking, we're talking at each other because we're actually not agreeing on the definition. The principles and the ethics and the standards with which we have conducted ourselves all these times is is are crucial bulwarks, as you've as you've said. I think we have to make sure that we don't calcify them and that we make sure that we um, continue to review them as we go along. There are things that happen, like, you, you know, newsrooms can sometimes, or, or editors can sometimes, you know, they, they have a sense of what, what normal is and what neutral is. And that isn't necessarily what someone else thinks is normal or neutral. Some things have been sort of characterized uh, as an intellectual debate, where some people that are involved in that intellectual debate say that intellectual debate you're having could actually get my family member shot. Um, it, it has real-life consequences to some that it doesn't have to someone else, and, and people need to know that. Like, you know, the newsrooms have to take that into account, and I'm sure they, they are, but I, again, I think we need to make sure that we don't lean on what we always did because we have made mistakes in the past. Brody, we're often, when, when journalism is under attack, whether it's CBC or any, anyone else, we're often told, you know, put your head down, do the work, do the good journalism, and, you know, we all like to believe that that happens all the time. But I'm wondering, not to diminish that, but beyond that, what's one thing you would love to change right now that might help enhance public trust? Just one. Just one, yeah. Uh, I think, well, I will, I will just, oh, I can't do just one. I'll do two things I think sure. that we should do. One is accountability. 
We're not actually, and I'll put myself at the front of the line, we're not very good when questioned ourselves. We're very good at asking questions and holding others to account. But when that turns on us and it's turning on us in all the time now, and sometimes in really heated moments, and I've lived through a few of those, it, you struggle to find out how do you respond to that. So I think we need to get better at that. And that's everything about just being real with people and transparent about what we do. And then the other thing we need to do is really always put a check on our own biases. Most newsrooms now, because of the pullback from local, tend to be in large urban centers with good transit. We as journalists, our journalists will disagree with this, but we are well paid when you compare ourselves to the average uh, income in this country. Politics can be progressive in newsrooms. Um, So what does that mean? It means that I hear from people who say, well, I'm a farmer, you don't get me. Or I'm religious, and you don't get religion. Or I'm big business, and I contribute to this country, but you don't get us, you just go after us. Or a gun owner, or the oil patch. There are groups that feel like they, we don't get them. And I think that's the work we have to do. We've got to get them. Uh, and maybe it's, it's extra work for us because we're not in some of these places. But how do you do that is the question. Well, you do it, by the, first of all, by, by naming it and by working extra hard to find out who's missing at that table or whose perspective is not there. And we've done a lot of great work at the CBC over the last few years doing that through a, a racial and cultural lens. But absolutely, we need to always be pushing. So who else is missing politically, regionally? And that is, Sonia, that is something that we're, the traditional media is often accused of, is living in kind of these bubbles. bubbles that, yeah. How do we get out of the bubble? It's about, I think, building a team of people, I think to your point, where, where you've got diversity of thought. And, um, but I, I don't feel hopeless. I look at some of the work that is coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at some of the work that students are producing who are doing this on their own time, you know, along with their homework, hopefully. I don't know that I did that, but, <laughs> and, and that gives me hope as well. So it's all of those things. Thank you for taking my questions. I'd like to turn it over to the audience. So there are two people with microphones who will be out there looking for your hand up. Um, so just put up your hand and someone will come to you. So uh, our first one is right here. Please proceed. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for your panel. Um, I feel like I've seen a number of articles recently from each of your newsrooms that have shared quotes from interview subjects that either um, didn't substantiate the claims or didn't contextualize them. So for example, there was a piece uh, by Global on October 15th that interviewed a colonel in the Israeli army, uh, Colonel Golenbach, and he said, quote, and the baby was beheaded. The stories of beheaded babies are true, end quote. Um, Following that claim, there was no contextualization that Global or the reporter, Stuart Ball, were able to verify any evidence of those claims. And prior to publishing that article, the Israeli government itself had already stated repeatedly that it had not been able to verify claims of babies being beheaded. And just thinking about the proliferation of disinformation that we're talking about right now uh, and the responsibility of editors here, um, can you speak to your role in preventing disinformation from being normalized through unverified quotes as it relates particularly to this context of Palestine and Israel? Thank you for the question. Sonia, would you well, like to I'll, take that? I'll, I'll try to take, I mean, I'll, I'll try to address that. I think that, um, and I think that having covered, you know, this ongoing conflict um, myself, it's, it's extremely, it's an extremely challenging one to cover. I think that what we try to do is to, um, 
is to recognize and be transparent about, um, about our limits and about what we can verify and what we can't verify. And I, I don't, I, I, I need to really see the example that you're talking about specifically, but every night, you know, I go through our, our scripts and our copy um, that, uh, that appear on GN and, you know, to make sure that um, when we can't verify something, we try to be transparent about that fact and say Global News has been unable to verify this. And, and it happened just last night, I believe, with uh, around the, um, the, the claims of who hit the Al-Akhli hospital. There was a, uh, an audio recording that was released um, by the Israelis that claimed to, you know, to show the conversation between two Hamas operatives. And we said very transparently, we're unable to verify this. So there's that, there's recognizing and acknowledging the limits of what we're able to do. And then I think there's also the responsibility of presenting the other side, right? So in, in this particular case, you have, um, you have Israel claiming that it's a Islamic Jihad misfired rocket that hit this hospital. And then you have the doctor, you know, on the ground in Gaza who works for, uh, who works for MSF, who um, is, is claiming, you know, that it's an Israeli airstrike that actually hit the hospital. I don't have a reporter in Gaza right now. You know, it's impossible to get a reporter inside from the outside, right? And, and so you have to, I think, credit who the information is, is coming from properly, so to properly accredit it to present the counterclaims and to recognize and acknowledge your own limits as a reporter in, in, in this kind of conflict. It's extremely challenging. And our reporting on the story is heavily scrutinized. Uh, it's something that we do, honest to God, wrestle with all the time. And we try to be um, as diligent as we possibly can. You know, And I'm not saying that we never make mistakes, but I do feel that if mistakes are made, that we try to to address those, right? To really take a, a look. Uh, I don't know if others want to answer that question. Another answer, Brody, no? Sure, okay. well, just yeah. journalism is, especially in a situation like this, breaking news, developing story, war. It's an iterative process. And, and, and there are already multiple examples. Uh, you had Biden saying something that he had seen, which then the White House backtracked. So we reported what Biden said with full attribution. And then the minute the White House actually started to pull back, we reported that and adjusted. And that's really the best you can do. It's, it's tough. You, you have principal players in a story. If you have a health authority telling you that this is what's happened and you have, I mean, somebody, and believe me, these debates play out in our newsrooms too. Somebody today said, should we just not report until we know? Well, like, Sonia, we don't have a reporter in Gaza. We're, we have lots in Israel where we can't get in. Uh, but you also have something happening, a major explosion, people injured or dead, the world starting to around in that region starting to protest. How would we not start to report on it? And we would report and we would attribute really carefully and clearly. And we try to give the context of what we have been able to verify ourselves, which is really important. But this is not easy to do when things develop minute by minute. Thank you, Brody. Uh, where's the next question coming from? Yeah, go ahead. What has been the result in economic and audience terms of Meta News Blockade for your media over the past few months? And if Meta does not leave the news blackout or worse, if Google joins it, will it be catastrophic for journalists in Canada? Irene, did you want to say something about this? Um, 
I don't think it'll be, I mean, it, honestly, things are pretty catastrophic as it is. I'm not sure. <laughs> like, how many levels of catastrophic can we talk about? I mean, it, 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 it has an impact. Um, you know, again, we have different, we have, we have different business models here. It's like, so uh, the star is a subscription business model. Facebook itself did not convert many people. To, to subscriptions. It was not an audience that was a greatly paying audience for us for the, for the expense of journalism. I think what it does more than that is actually on the issue of, of maybe trust is, is access. Again, we keep saying like we're blown over by the amount of disinformation and it's hard to find us. So like if you could get us places where you, we could be found, that is a, that is a social good. Um, but I don't think financially it would be catastrophic. But I think, again, catastrophic has happened. 80%, I think maybe now 75% of, of ad dollars going to, to the tech giants and away from, from media, which has led to all these things that we've been talking about, including the closing of bureaus, and et cetera. Well, not, and, and not all by itself, but that's been part of it. And, and the catastrophe is not just, I think, for us, right? It's, it's for all of us. Because when you have an organization that's blocking news content at a time of wildfires, at a time of war, I feel that that's unconscionable. So I think that, you know, there is an obvious, um, to your question, there's an obvious harm to our business and our industry, but it's also a harm that extends to everyone in this audience, quite frankly. And, and that's something that I think is, is something that needs to be talked about more. And I'll just add, and I want to be careful because we've got to cover this as a story too, but just be aware that Facebook is one thing, but Google is next, and Google has tested withdrawing news from search. And Google is the window or the front door to the internet for so many people. That is a whole other thing. And if that happens, that will have an impact on anyone who relies on search, and almost every news organization does for a bulk of its audience. But never mind, just access to information. Can you imagine something will happen and you will Google it and you will not be able to find it. That's potentially what's at play. So in the meantime, um, you know, we are trying to build awareness of our own properties, reminding people you're going to have to maybe do some harder work to come to us directly. Wouldn't it be great if everyone actually did the work of trying to get out of a filter bubble to go see the other filter bubble? But I actually think that's what we have to do now. We, we have to work harder to find those other perspectives to balance out your news diet. You are listening to Trust Talks, the future of journalism in a digital world. The speakers were Irene Gentle of the Toronto Star, Sonia Verma of Global News, and Brody Fenlon of CBC News. This event was recorded at the Isabel Bader Theatre at Victoria University, part of the University of Toronto. This episode was produced by Greg Kelly with help from Tom Howell. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast. If you liked the episode you just heard, check out our vast archive where you can find more than 300 of our past episodes. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.